everybody. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. This time coming to you from the end of time. Why? Not to be confused with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy restaurant at the end of the universe. No, but we are talking about an interesting contemplation of time and matter in the universe from J.G. Ballard, a British author who was prominent in the new wave of science fiction. The story is The Voices of Time, originally published in the October 1960 issue of New Worlds magazine. Yeah, and we probably should do a little bit of discussion here about what this whole new wave of science fiction is, because it probably provides a little bit of context as to you know, why this story is a little different, I would say, than all the other ones we've, we've pretty much covered here. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that are contemporary, including, you know, we, we were talking during our cyberpunk episode, or first one anyway, that talked about Johnny Mnemonic, where a lot of those authors who are part of the cyberpunk movement cite the new wave as their primary influence in terms of like the ideas and the philosophies and the and the concepts that they're bringing forward with things. So, but now we've got an opportunity to, to look at one of the grandmasters of that new wave itself. Absolutely. And, and this is kind of where the, the transition from, I guess, what we had, we've covered in traditional science fiction to this new wave science fiction, which, you know, being in the 1960s, a lot of stuff was new and countercultural and revolutionary, whatever. But uh, what these authors really did is they kind of started to steer away from the traditional human meets alien, you know, technological doodad that does something and started focusing a little bit more on what they would consider the softer sciences, right? The psychology, the sociology, all these other things that, that go into human society that are much more complex and, and much less technologically in your face. Some people talk about the classic sci-fi focusing on the outer sphere, whereas the new wave and the stuff that's influenced focused more on the inner sphere. I think there's actually a movie called Inner Sphere somewhere. I know there's a movie called Sphere. There might have been one called Inner Sphere. I wonder if you're thinking about that one that was called Inner Space. Oh, yeah, Inner Sphere. It should have been called Inner Sphere. Then I would have been right. That's right. We'll just have to make that one instead. So let's get one thing out of the way here. Uh, Ballard was just an enormous influence on all sorts of different areas, not only science fiction, but he was he influenced different philosophers. He influenced other musicians, all sorts of different people. Painters, filmmakers. Exactly. All sorts of different areas were influenced by Ballard. And he, he passed away in 2009. And if, it, if you really want to go research him, there's probably dozens of articles out there that detail his life, his autobiographies, his interests, you know, his influences, everything else. But we should also get one other thing straight. Neither of us is an expert on Ballard. Or pretty much on anything for that matter, which is yeah, well. why we do a podcast, because I guess we don't have to be very intelligent to talk about stuff. Hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will say I don't have to be very intelligent to talk about stuff. Anyway, the point is that we are not experts on Ballard, and uh, I don't think that either of us are ever going to be. But we are going to try to talk about this uh, this one particular story he wrote, which falls into the era of new wave science fiction. And it's one that, as challenging as it is, we both consider it a worthwhile read and even entertaining. Right. So look, looking at this story, uh, since it is kind of a, you know, this new wave sort of squishier story than we've covered on the story on this show before, I, I kind of liken this, this story to more of a, it's like looking at a surrealist painting and trying to describe it. I don't know if you could really describe the story and do it justice. So, you know, we're going to do our best here, but it might be something that, that listeners would want to read for themselves to get a feel for, for how this genre or how this particular subgenre of science fiction works. Ballard is supposedly 
heavily influenced by people like Carl Jung and postmodern philosophers. And so you know there's a lot of stuff going on in his head. There's a lot of complex ideas. And he's trying to find ways of, in his, well, not necessarily in his words, but, but by action, infuse some new life into a tired old genre, which is what he thought of as classic science fiction. So what we're going to do here is, uh, you know, our best at deconstructing this story and, and trying to give the, the listeners a little bit of an idea of what it's about. In tried and true fashion, let's kind of run through the characters of the story. There's uh, not too many of them, as you would expect by now. The, the first one and the main guy we hear about through the entire story is a, a man by the name of Robert Powers. He's a, a neurosurgeon. One of his colleagues, Paul Anderson, another doctor, and uh, actually who's treating powers for a, a disease we'll get into. There's a, a guy by the name of Cauldron, who is a patient that Dr. Powers worked on. Uh, his girlfriend, who is ironically named Coma, for reasons we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes. And a former colleague of them named Whitby, who is, although deceased, still has a pretty significant voice throughout the story. And this is a story where we'll walk through elements of the story arc, but it's really not a story where it's about the narrative arcs, so to speak. I mean, the, the basic context is that we meet Powers at a point where he is coming to understanding of and coming to grips with some things that are going on, um, some things that are changing in the world, then some things that are changing in himself. So the background, I guess, <clears throat> to set the scene of the, the story is the human race has been, I don't know what you call it, infected, afflicted with this sleeping sickness. And what it does is you basically sleep more and more every single day until that's what you're doing for your entire life. And these, these humans are all at, at this place called the clinic. How you know creatively named is that? And they are indeed called the sleepers. Again, I guess creativity was not big on Ballard's mind when it came to non-essential plot elements. As we are as we are launching into the early events, we learn that Powers is following up on the research of his deceased colleague Whitby. Whitby, who we only know at the beginning of the story that he has committed suicide. At least that's that's the way it has been characterized. We learn the nature of that a little bit later in the story. Well, actually, quite a bit later in the story. But as he was well before he killed himself. He left a lot of audio tapes and notes about his research and what he was doing. And we find out that Powers is indeed trying to either decipher his research or carry it on. Yeah, and one of the things that has drawn Powers' attention right at the beginning is this mandala that, that Whitby had chiseled in the floor of an unused pool over the course of a summer. Right, and so Powers goes into the pool to look at this mandala for for people who don't know what a mandala is, it's this large geometric type of, I don't know what you would call it, a, a geometric figure that they used to use for meditation, which nowadays apparently we see everywhere in coloring books and in media and movies. But back in the 1950s and 60s, these were still fairly obscure things. Yeah, because they'd, they'd come out of, or the awareness of them in Western culture um, came out of people who were getting into Buddhism and um, Hinduism and so forth, where people who were encountering spirituality systems from other cultures were coming across mandalas and putting them in their homes to practice meditation and so on. What we end up with is Powers is sitting at the pool. He's looking at this mandala thing. He finds this strange creature in the pool, which it looks like it's had a weird mutation. And apparently it's not the first one he's found around the area. 
which is another indication something else is going on in the story. Yeah, and we learn slowly that he has begun cataloging or collecting these things. We don't we don't find that out until later when he's explaining it to Coma, but he co- goes crawls down into the pool and he picks up this thing and it's a he describes it later on as a frog, but at the beginning when he first encounters it, it doesn't seem like that at all to the readers. It, it has like a, a foot-long articulated shell that is made of lead. And it's got a little body underneath that it's you know, just sort of wiggling around in the in the water in the sludge at the bottom of the pool. So he picks it up in a shoebox and he decides to carry it along with him. And part of the story we find out is told through these diary entries. I don't know why all the, they either keep diaries or audio tracks. But with the next scene we come into, which, as we've said before, this thing jumps around a lot and it's a little difficult to follow. But it's a, an entry by, by Powers and it kind of talks about what he has done with this subject cauldron. And especially in context of this whole sleeping sickness thing, he, being a neurologist, had experimented on this guy Cauldron and caused him to not have to sleep at all, and which had some, I guess, fairly negative results to Cauldron's personality and psyche. He makes reference himself as he's thinking about things to all the brains that have passed between his hands. Yeah, so it's implied that he does a lot of surgical neuro stuff. And it's all in the pursuit of understanding of how we... How to combat this disease. Yeah. So then, of course, we have to jump around again to yet another odd scene, which is uh, when Powers meets the girlfriend of Cauldron, who, as I said before, is named Coma. And there's where the irony comes in, because the girlfriend's (laughs) named after the sleeping sickness, which everybody seems to have. Except for her, actually. Except for, well, we don't really find out what's going on with her. She does seem pretty normal in the context of the story. So so Powers meets her at Whitby's lab. Now, Whitby, as we said, was another colleague of Powers. And we find out that Whitby's been doing some experimentation on a bunch of animals in his lab, or I guess we should say he was doing this before he committed suicide. Yeah, Whitby was exploring this concept called the silent gene. You're a silent pair of genes, I think. Yes, exactly. It's this this concept that actually does come out of out of biology, where there are there are elements of our genetic makeup that are suppressed, or that are not suppressed, but that are latent, and they just sort of hang out, not really doing anything that we know of. Yeah, that we know of. Um, and the the understanding or the the notion is that they might become active during certain kinds of conditions. And Whitby was really fascinated by this concept and was exploring whether or not radiation, x-ray specifically, might become a trigger for, oh, well, for for making these genes active rather than silent. Right. I mean, if you look at at research on things like the silent mutation, the idea is that, you know, if you change something in the genetic code and nothing in in the being changes that you can determine, it's a silent mutation and it's these silent genes and we therefore we still don't know what they do. But under the right environmental conditions, they might express themselves. And indeed, as part of Whitby's research, we have this whole bizarre cornucopia of lab animals that have all these strange mutations as a result of being exposed to radiation and having these these genes expressed. So, for example, there's a sea anemone that has, has closed off the base of, of its tube uh, as, a, as a mutation that has been enacted by these x-rays. And it has grown a neural stem that is very different from what its original physiology would would have. 
Right. You've got these animals that have these weird sensory appendages. No one seems to know they're they're either adapted for high gravity conditions, high radiation conditions, just all sorts of strange environments that in no way reflect what we have on Earth today. And of course, this is all told through the conversation that's happening between Coma and Powers. This is how we find out all this information. And in Coma, of course, comes up with the obvious question, well, animals have all these silent pairs of genes. What about people? And of course, as Power says, oh yeah, like like what one in a hundred thousand or something have them, or you know, there's some number of the of the population that indeed do have these silent genes. However, he does say that it is clear to him, at least, that everybody who is afflicted with the sleeping sickness has silent genes. Right, and as we said before, Powers himself must have them because he is another victim of the sleeping sickness. And from there. If they kind of turn to, well, let, let's look at some, some possible reasons why this is happening. They turn to Whitby's audio diaries, where Whitby starts expressing some very interesting concepts about what he thinks is going on and the fate of the human race. Whitby explains that, among other things, he sees us as having peaked genetically or evolutionarily, and that we are now in an evolutionary decline rather than an incline. Contradicting the assumption that our evolutionary arc, so to speak, would just be a continuous climb. Uh, instead, he proposes that we are in the decline and that we aren't alone, that it's our entire planet shows evidence of this. Right. He's talking about crop yields. He's talking about how much we have to sleep. We apparently didn't need as much sleep you know, earlier generations. Our metabolisms are slowing down. Populations are in decline. And it just it's very clear to Whitby that the human race is on its way down or out and that we are essentially going to degenerate into a bunch of, you know, primitive ape-like human creatures, as he says, something to the effect of, you know, poking around the remains of the clinic and all the technology with no idea of what they're doing. And the kicker is that he assumes that the reason that we have entered into this evolutionary decline is because of the testing of the hydrogen bomb specifically. Ah, yes. You always got to bring in the old H-bomb as the reason why all this stuff is happening. Right. So we're tinkering with the, you know, the subatomic level, and we do not know what we have unleashed is kind of the implication here. And so, of course, we have to turn from that little revelation to yet another different story or different tangent in the story, which is how they start discussing Cauldron, who, as we mentioned before, was a patient of Dr. Powers. And the fact that Cauldron, who you know has not had any sleep in, we don't actually know when the treatment happened, but it's been quite a while, he's now collecting what he calls terminal documents, which are some kind of odd time capsule-ish... Um, collection of the best of the human race and why he's collecting them we don't really know but it's yet another indication that all is not right with the world for example among these things he has the eeg readout of albert einstein at some point in his life yes and and you know the the scores written by beethoven and other very odd items from the the, the visionaries of the human race but generally during periods of their life where they themselves were in decline. So this whole notion of decline and decay and entropy are huge themes. We'll, we'll circle back around to that, but, but if it feels like we're building in that direction, we definitely are. So there's some other odd things that, that start coming out in these, in these various discussions. One is that 
we've apparently launched people to the moon. They actually interestingly, interestingly call them the Mercury 7, which although it has nothing to do with the real Mercury 7, they call them that, and that they've somehow landed in the white gardens of the moon and refused to come home and express all sorts of strange psychological issues. And there's indication that they met some alien race or something like that that is called the Orions who have shared with them information including the fate of the universe. So if that's not confusing enough, now Powers, we find out, who is, who is you know, he's in his decline or terminal decline to a period of complete sleepfulness, if sleepfulness is an actual word. And he goes out to this abandoned military test firing range, and we find out he starts constructing his own version of this mandala that can very similar to the one we heard about in the beginning of the story that Whitby did, but apparently on a much grander scale. Right, making it out of concrete that he doesn't remember later having bought. Um, and, and again, at an old uh, artillery range or something along those lines. So yeah, and if that's not confusing enough, then for some reason Cauldron invites Powers over to his house for lunch. Cauldron lives in this, I'm not really sure how to describe it. It's a house whose architecture is based on the square root of negative one. Assuming that you know what that means. I certainly don't. But it's in the shape of a towering spiral, and at one point it refers to him standing on a balcony or on the roof of the seventh floor of it. Yeah, and apparently Powers has been there before and has, keeps getting hopelessly lost inside. I mean, I, I, none of my math class has ever included a crossover to architecture, so I, I have a hard time visualizing this, but that's all right. Hard to say whether it's an expression of his original personality or of his pending insanity or looming insanity. Cauldron, immediately upon bringing Powers into the this, this strange house, refers to it as his laboratory and, and says, and it's much better than your laboratory. And what he's doing in this laboratory is he's collecting observations from radio observatories and has determined somehow that all these different radio sources in the universe are sending out sequences of numbers that are all counting down. The question is, what are they counting down to? Guess what? It's another reference to decay because one of the, one of the postulates that he makes reference to suggests that the sequence will end either just prior to or just after the end of the universe. Uh, I don't. That doesn't make sense to me because then every single one would have the exact same number, wouldn't it? You would think. I mean, I, to me, it makes more sense that they're having a countdown to the end of each individual object. So, but we can agree to disagree on that topic. Well, it's counting down to something. Well, I'm not sure that it's even clear in the context of the story what any of it is counting down toward you and. and it is kind of left as an exercise to the reader to, because we keep he keeps throwing these these little pieces of paper with numbers like you know fifty nine trillion nine hundred eighty seven billion you know et cetera et cetera and then they'll keep another number you know, the same number but minus six. <laughs> I certainly don't claim to understand it. Right, but it's just one more thing Ballard throws out in the context of the story to sort of you know give us another idea that there's some entropy and decay and countdowns happening. Well, and by this point, one of the things that's also happening is we see these diary entries where Powers is, he's logging how many hours he is awake during the day. And somewhere relatively early in the story, he, he, he turns the corner from being awake half of the day to being awake less than half of the day. And by the time all of this kind of stuff is happening, what is he, down to like five and a half or four and a half hours of awake time during the day? Yeah, it's like, woke up at 10.15 a.m., went to sleep at 2.37. And this is significant because 
his his cognitive functions are impacted by his lack of awake time. And so he becomes more and more clouded and less capable of being Professor Powers, this this you know neurosurgeon, and he has to inject himself with powerful stimulants just to give himself two or three hours of coherent work time every day. Which he uses to keep working on this giant mandala out in the artillery range. Right. So where does that leave us? I was going to say that that brings us up to if there's a climax to the story, it is this moment where Powers, faced with his impending, I guess, slipping into permanent coma, decides to irradiate himself. He tries to go and activate the silent pair of genes that he knows he has, and he knows they do something, but he's not really sure what. And just for anybody's, uh, just for people's information, this is not a particularly easy part of the story to figure out, but that's exactly what he does. And apparently what he also does is he takes all of the experimental animals in Whitby's lab, which is where the big x-ray irradiation machine is that does all these types of things, and he piles them in a big circle around himself while he conducts the experiment. And they, in fact, all die as a result of increased radiation exposure, but Powers himself, then once he completes the treatment, all of a sudden undergoes some very interesting perceptual changes. Side note, that as we are learning about this process that Powers is putting himself through, we learn that this is actually what happened with Whitby. Well, you don't really learn that that's what he did, but it's kind of implied. Yeah, there you go. You know, where, where the, the understanding is that because of, of how they find Whitby, which we'll get to in just a moment that he must have irradiated himself in an attempt to activate his own silent genes. So Powers, after he's done this whole irradiation treatment, he goes back out to his mandala. And while he's on his way out, he starts hearing, perceiving, seeing. It's not really clear how he gets this information, but he all of a sudden has a sense of the, the time factor of everything around him, that the rocks, the mountains, the trees, how old they are, how long they have left to live, this just profound impact of the, I don't know if you want to call it mortality, since they're not mortals, but the, you know, the, the impending doom of everything around him and how long it has left to last. As I was reading it, the impression that I was left with in terms of the way the scene is described is that he's driving his car down the road toward the toward the the military installation where he has built his mandala, and it's almost as if he is driving through canyons that are made by these walls or waves of time, and that he has the perception of when each of these is and where each of these is represented in the landscape around him. It's it's a very very curious kind of scene. And as we stated at the beginning of this podcast, it's really hard to describe. And <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. And, you know, like I said, it's trying to describe a surrealist or an abstract painting, and it's, it, you have to really experience it to, to, to get a real feel for, for what Ballard's trying to say here. Well, the end of his journey takes him out to the military installation. He walks through his mandala on, and until he gets to the center of it, stands on the little platform that he has built for himself there, and basically looks up into the universe and experiences time. That's that's just one sort of way to say it, but it's... Yeah, he says, uh, like, every single individual object has its little time sequence that he can hear, but then he gets to the center, and he can hear the, you know, the beginning of the cosmos, whatever that is, and what the, the big clock in the sky is the one that's speaking to him now. 
And this, of course, is where the title of the story comes from, because he is listening to the voices of time. And this also serves as a transition into is what is inevitably his death, where in a few short sentences, the uh, cauldron and coma come upon Powers' dead body, still there. And then Cauldron goes back to Whitby's lab, finds out all the animals have perished from the X-ray radiation. And then Cauldron goes and retires back to his own little house to do a little contemplation on what all this means. And he locks himself away. And that's pretty much how the story ends. We Coma tries to, to reach out to him and he ignores it. She knocks on the door for a while and he just stays in there shuttered. And someone else comes along. That's, that's the probably the most peculiar part about the end of the story. A, he hears a second voice. We have no context for knowing what, why, who it might be. There's, there's no hint of any kind. All we know is that Cauldron just locks himself away. Yeah, and there's another like equally strange sentence after they find Powers' body where he turns to Coma and, and he knows the police are on their way to investigate what happened. And he tells Coma, don't let them break the clock. And I'm like, what clock are they talking about? Is he referring to this giant mandala that, that Powers built? That's another kind of strange thing that we can't quite figure out. And she even says to him at that point, are you coming back? And he says, I don't know. So how clear is all this? Not very. <laughs> and that's the impression I had the first time I read it. And I had to read it probably three or four times before I had some idea of what was going on here. It's a story that's less about the arc that the events in the story express than the individual events themselves. And again, you know, with, with these concepts of entropy and chaos and decay being so big in, in Ballard's world, you know, this is a story that defies the standard construction. It's a story that defies the typical, you know, progression of story from point A to point B to its ultimate climax and conclusion. What I found interesting about this was that it's really several different small story arcs that all kind of revolve around this same central concept. And and any single one of these would normally, you know, be its own type of short story or novella. The whole idea of the human race with its sleeping sickness, the idea of curing a guy so he doesn't sleep anymore, the whole idea that there's silent pairs of genes and we're doing experimentation to see what they're going to turn into. All of these different you know, story arcs that revolve around time and, and entropy and devolution in its own right could have been a single story, but the way it's presented here, they're all kind of intertwined to give you the impression that this is what it's all about, but you have to kind of disentangle them as the reader. And the other thing is that you're not really left with you know, a sense of morality or a sense of finality, I suppose, with, with, with the morality. There's, there's no judgment. There's no, if we had only done it differently, we would have avoided this disaster. You know, for example, if you pick that one of those arcs, the, the development of the hydrogen bomb. Of course, coming out of the 50s and 60s, we've got all of these monster movies that are in cinema that come from the U.S. and Japan. Godzilla and um, Gamera and so on. You know, these, you know, these creatures that are generated from radiation from the from the testing of atomic weaponry or hydrogen weaponry um, you've got things like you know the creature from the black lagoon that was spawned from cast off toxic waste i mean you got all of these different kinds of things where there's a direct cause effect here yeah we're talking about there's the possibility that hydrogen testing has increased the background radiation but it's just more like well so here's the thing that's happening 
Right. And it, and one of the things that we may or may not have, have pointed out is that these genetic te- or these genetic experiments that were happening in Whitby's lab with the, with the radiation treatments, he's finding these things out in nature. Right. So we find that, that apparently we've accelerated the evolution of the species around us by these H-bomb testings, and it's actually causing the expression of these silent genes that are latent in all sorts of different animals. But it's an interesting concept, the way that it's expressed, because it seems to be that this stuff would have all happened anyway because of the sun's years. Right. Yeah, but we accelerated it through our own actions. Yeah, and, and even like there's smaller parts inside the text that are all about time and, and decline. He, he refer- references, you know, he's reading Toynbee and Spengler, and I was like, who the hell are Toynbee and Spengler? Well, they you know wrote these huge treatises. One was, you know, Toynbee wrote A Study of History, and it was this huge 12-volume set, and Spengler wrote The Decline of the West, all about, you know, the rise and fall of civilizations. And then they make reference to Aniwatok, which is the 1952 site of the first hydrogen bomb test. So even there's like all these other little things scattered throughout the story that even, you know, tangentially relate to this the central concept of entropy and, and time and decline. And as a reader, you're kind of left wondering, what am I supposed to do with all of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, if you take a typical story, like most of the ones we've had, you know, a, a typical story, right, you got the exposition where you get all the characters, you got the action where, where things happen, you know, the climax, and then the falling action at the end of the story, which you know, if you think of the last story we did with First Contact, it just followed that right to the letter, right? This story doesn't seem to have any of that, right? You get some character introduction, you got some things that happen, there's sort of a climax maybe and then nothing so you're kind of left with the whole what am i supposed to take away from this story you know it's hard to say what we're supposed to take away from this story specifically but it gives us an opportunity to maybe talk about why it is that ballard himself or or his work might have been influential on other thinkers creators and you know people who are you know, not just in science fiction, but, but I mean, for our purposes, specifically in science fiction, why he's such an important voice. You know, he's challenging these notions of, you know, our, our, our dad's or our granddad's science fiction, you know, the, the predictable story elements and the predictable structures and the predictable morality that's based in what he wants to challenge as, as maybe outmoded or outdated Judeo-Christian emphasis on right and wrong. And it's really the kind of the same thing we talked about in the Johnny Mnemonic episode and the rise of cyberpunk. This is kind of sandwiched in between, you know, the traditional science fiction and the cyberpunk movement. And the cyberpunk movement, even Bruce, Bruce Sterling has said that Ballard was an early influence on this when uh, the new wave of science fiction started talking about things like the uh, uh, sexual revolution, drugs, um, that bringing in all of the psychology aspects, all of the spirituality aspects of human society. And that kind of bridged the gap between traditional science fiction and the cyberpunk uh, movement. Yeah, Ballard makes it okay to question the prevailing notions of how our society works and to, to question whether or not that's the way that society ought to work. I mean, for example, there's nothing that's necessarily uh, you know, anti-capitalistic in here, but there's other stuff that he writes that we've that, that we understand to be critical of those kinds of things. And so he's one of those voices that gives us permission to say, well, wait a minute, what if things were not this way? Or 
what else might there be? Or what happens if I write a story that's really hard to understand and really doesn't make any sense? And apparently now it's okay to do that. That's right. And and so, you know, he, he's opening up the he's he's opening up the the pathways by which we might explore through science fiction ideas what it might mean to have a place in the universe and and where we might go with that yeah because if you look at where i think we may have mentioned this before that uh, ballard had a lot of influence from young and freud and so on and so forth and of course they were big on self-identity and finding one's place in the universe and in some ways you read these stories and and Ballard is kind of trying to insert that whole, you know, in the implacable forces of the universe and time that can't be stopped and entropy that can't be stopped. You know, where, what does a, what's a lowly human to do? And how do we figure out our place in the cosmos? Yeah, I mean, you look back at our previous episode where we're talking about first contact. You, know, you made reference to it being a very predictable kind of storyline or following those those classical structures. But it's also one where... They are literally progressing through their interactions with an alien race by the book. Everything is about is about establishing and maintaining order. It's about thinking about how things ought to be and then doing exactly that. And although they break from those traditions and they rewrite the book, so to speak, they still do it in a way that's very structured and very analytical. And, and Ballard isn't necessarily saying that that's the way to be. Not, not that he's not analytical or that his characters aren't, aren't paying attention to what's going on around them, but they're not going for those preconceived notions of how things ought to be. Well, damn it, since on this show we like structure, we need to move into something that we're very good at, which is talking about the, the dated, now-to-place elements of the show, because God knows with, with the lack of structure in the story, we need to talk about something that makes sense to us. That is absolutely right. And looking at this story, we, we find that, well, it is sort of a contemporary story. There's not a lot there. There's a few things that we can look at as, as kind of, they do date the story in the you know late 50s, early 60s. They talk about, I forget which of the characters, he's wearing plimsolls, which are shoes, which kind of predated tennis shoes and sneakers and whatnot. And like one of the characters drives a Packard, of course, the epitome of automobile quality in the day. I don't remember the GE Maxitron. Oh, is that the, their computer? Now the GE Maxitron, that, I mean, obviously everybody listening to the show is an aficionado of old X-ray technology and the entire history of X-ray technology. And the GE Maxitron, which is what they use in the clinic, was invented in 1958, specifically, I think, the 250-volt version. But of course, you know, Bill, all the readers out there, or all the listeners out there know that. That's right, because we're all experts in ancient technologies. Ancient technology. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about Eric Von Daniken and Ancient Aliens and the GE Maxitron in the next episode. That's right. Well, hopefully not. But that's a pretty short list of things. You know, there, there's not much that, that makes it dated. It, there's, there's more of the things that, that just make it feel like a little bit of an expanded universe, but we've already talked about those things. Well, one of the ways that we like to anchor our realities here in TBD land is through our patent-pending Hmm, whoa, what the fuck scale? So, Dan, where do we rank Voices of Time? Well, I, I think it's probably no surprise where this one's going to fall. At least, you know, the first time I, I read it, it was completely a what the fuck. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I mentioned I had to read it several times to actually figure out what was going on. And then you kind of get to the whoa factor. You know, it, it's kind of interesting because we made reference to there's a lot of different story arcs going on in here. And the fact that any one of them could probably have been a story in itself. And all of those could have been, you know, good stories. And they might have been just a, a hmm story for each individual one. But putting them all together like Ballard does, 
and and trying to get the reader to follow him, yeah, that that definitely is a a woe slash what the fuck type of scenario. Yeah, this is I think another one of those stories that requires a Venn diagram, and and the biggest hoop or the biggest contribution might be from the what the fuck side of things, but at the same time. Yeah, there's quite a bit going on here, and and he, his his goal is definitely to make us consider, well, to consider <laughs> what yeah, you choose to, to consider, consider is up to you. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think there's there's plenty of complexity here. I I I would venture to say that aside from the fact that we don't have any laser battles, there's there's some there's some stuff to draw in a pretty wide spectrum of readers. Even though I think everybody's going to come away challenged. So if you've made it to the end of this episode and you're kind of thinking it's a really disjointed episode with a bunch of random tangents and story arcs and a bunch of jumbled thoughts thrown together. No, no, it, Dan, by the, by the magic of post-production, it didn't come off that way at all, I'm sure. Really? Right? Yeah. I, I think the listeners will have to decide on that one. But my, my point was if you like the really bizarre and random way this podcast probably ended up, then you'll then we've probably given the story a fair representation. Yep. Ballard is one of those people that is absolutely worth reading, but you got to go in expecting it to be different from some of the stuff that you've read in other places and expecting some challenges. Well, we hope you come on back for our next episode, which is going to focus on yet another classic. What are we talking about, Dan? And this would be the famous Paul Anderson bringing us Sam Hall. A pretty cool little story that even has a song that goes along with it. A nice little ditty about, well, not Jack and Diane, but some <laughs> other characters. 